As Brother Nathan said, it's great to see you this morning. We're glad that you're here. We hope and pray that the series of studies over the next month will be helpful, that they'll be uh, edifying and upbuilding and encouraging to you. As Brother Nathan said, we're going to be talking about the church this morning, and I've entitled our lesson, The Church That Christ Purchased. And we're going to take our reading from Acts 28 in a moment. I, I asked to forego the reading this morning because we've got a lot of material to cover. So we're going to move fast at times. We're going to slow down at times and really slow down at times to focus on some things to help us have a better understanding of the church that Jesus Christ purchased. In Acts chapter 28, Paul has finally made it to Rome. He's been looking forward to getting there for some time. And once he gets to Rome, he's in captivity, and he calls for the leaders of the Jews to come so he can speak to them. And Paul wants to explain to these Jews why he has left Judaism, why he has chosen to follow Jesus Christ, and why he has become a part of the church. And so as he's gathered them together, he begins to speak with them and talk with them about this issue. And it says, they said to him, we neither receive letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And so as Paul begins to talk about himself and about his reputation, they said, we haven't heard any of that. Nobody has spoken about you. Nobody said anything bad about you, but there is something that we want to hear from you because we have heard about this sect and we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And so although Paul did apparently not have the same reputation among these Jews that he had among many, they did hear about the church. And notice how they identified the church as a Sect. Now, that word sect means a group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs, typically regarded as heretical. And if you actually look up the Greek word here, it's ha-e-reses. You say, I don't know what that means. You hear it all the time. It's the word heresy, heresy, which means a division. And so they're looking at the church that Paul is a part of. You know what they're looking at it as? Just some denomination or division of Judaism. Just some sect, like the sect of the Pharisees or the sect of the Sadducees. And so that is the view that they had of the church. It was just a sect or a division. And notice they said everywhere it is spoken against. And I'll tell you, it's 2,000 years later and not much has changed. Because even today when you hear the word Church of Christ and when people hear about the Church of Christ, they think of it as a sect or a division of Christianity. And I'm sad to say that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, I, I say that not as a means of, uh, uh, of bringing up sore feelings, but just to say this. Some of that reputation has been earned through some very bad explanations of what the church is. And let's just be honest. But some of it's unfair, and it's a misunderstanding of what the Bible actually teaches. So we're going to talk about that this morning. So I want to ask you a question as we begin our study. Have you ever heard anybody say, when you tell them you're a member of the Church of Christ, oh, you're, you're those people that believe you're the only ones going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell. You ever heard that? What do you say? How do you answer that question? And I hope by the end of our study we'll be able to answer that question. And I believe that question is prefaced upon something that is a misnomer about the church. And what is the church? And, and it's important for us to understand what Paul talked about when he had a chance to talk to these Jewish leaders, notice what Paul visited with them about. 
He appointed a time, a day, and there came him, there came many to him into his lodging, to his house, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. So they said, Paul, we want to talk to you about this sect because we know everywhere it's spoken against. And so they appointed him a day. And when they came to him, what did he teach them about? They wanted to know about the church. What did he tell them? About the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. Isn't that kind of odd? It's actually not odd. You know why? Because that is the church. The church is the kingdom of God that is based on the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. And I hope that we see that as we go through our study this morning. But I just want to ask you about the word church for a moment. You know, words, they tend to evolve. They change meaning as we use them over time. And, you know, I don't mean to embarrass my kids, but they use terms I don't understand. And so they'll come into the house and they'll have some new term that I hear and I go, I don't know what that means. So the first time that Van said that something that Toy Cook was bussing, I thought, I don't know what that means. I think of bussing as something you do when you load a bunch of people on a vehicle and they take them somewhere. That's bussing, right? Well, we use words differently. If I asked my grandmother if she had a mouse in her home, her first thought would be a furry rodent. If I ask my kids if we have a mouse at home, they may think of a computer mouse because words change over time. And we've changed the way that the word church is used. I'll give you an example of this. Gallup did a poll several years ago, and they asked people their church preference. And one person's response caught my attention. His response was red brick. Red brick. That was his church preference. You know, a lot of people talked, they named a certain denomination or group of people. And, and, but this guy said red brick, and it's because that's the way we use the word church sometime. You know, we say, well, we're going to the church. Well, we're going to the church building, right? How does the Bible use the word church? And here's what's important for us. If we're going to understand what the church is biblically, we've got to abandon, we've got to forsake any preconceived notions that we might have and just look at the Bible. And I think that's fair. Don't you think that's fair? So let's just look at the Bible and ask the Bible, what do you mean by the word church? And so here's the word church that is used in the Greek, and it's, you can see it's used 115 times in the New Testament. And out of the 115 times, 113 times, it's translated church or churches. And then once or twice, rather, it's translated assembly. Now, if you took this word ecclesia, and you broke it down, it's a derivative of two words, the word ek and the word kaleo, which we'll look at later. And the word ek means out of or from or out from, and the word kaleo means to call. And so if you took those two words and you put them together, you know what you get? You get the word called out. And maybe you've heard the church called that, the called out. And today, as we're talking about the church of Christ, we're not talking about a small group of people or a denomination of Christianity. We're talking about the called out of Jesus Christ, the called out of Christ, those that have been called out. And I want to notice, if there's a calling, how are we called? How is a person called? And this is a, a big argument that we're not going to dive into this morning in detail. But how are we called? The Bible tells us, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 14, Paul said, Whereunto he, that's God, called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when a person is called out, they're called by what? They're called by the gospel. And that's very plain in Scripture. That was the purpose of the preaching of the gospel. That was the purpose of the Great Commission, is to go and call people out. Now, if we're called out, what are we called out from or of? What are we called out from? 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, moreover, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. So if we're called out by the gospel, let's understand what the gospel is. And again, we're going to move fast through some of this because this is some review. He says, which I preach to you, that's the gospel, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. So this gospel saves us. If you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now he's going to identify what that gospel message that saved them was and is. He says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to to the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is the message that Paul was preaching. This is the same thing that he was reasoning with those Jews about at Rome when he preached to them about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. He was telling them about Jesus' death for sins, his burial, and his resurrection. This is what calls us out. He said, well, how could that call us out? Well, it must be preached. That's how God calls. God calls us to the preaching of the gospel. And I want to go to the first time the gospel was ever preached, the first time that anyone was ever called out. And again, we're going to go through this somewhat quick because we're going to come back to this later. So as Peter is preaching to a multitude of Jews, he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Then he says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. What's he preaching? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's telling them who Jesus is. He was approved of God by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. So what was the result of this? After he preaches the gospel and then he goes to the prophets, he, he goes out of the Old Testament and he begins to prove to them that all of this was prophesied by God, that Jesus would come, that he would die, he would be buried, and he would rise again for the sins of the people. When they heard that message, the Bible says that Peter said, let there, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, heard what? What they hear? The gospel and the proof of the gospel. When they heard this, it says they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? To do what? What shall we do to do what? <laughs> to escape the wrath of God. He just told them that they killed the Son of God. They're asking, how do we get out of that? How do we stop that? How do we get forgiveness for that? And he says this, Then said Peter to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So repent and be baptized every one of you. That was his answer. Why? For the remission or forgiveness of sins. Now, this one's very important, the next verse. For the promises unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. You see that? There it is. Same word, kaleo. Well, who got called? They all did. They were all called by the preaching of the gospel. And some of them answered that call. And this is how God calls us. He doesn't call us through some miraculous means. He doesn't arbitrarily look down and say, I'm going to save this person and say, not save this person, so I'm going to call this person not this person. God calls everyone through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that day, Peter called them. Peter called. God called through the preaching of Peter's message. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. People believed it. That's how they responded to this call. They believed it, they received it, 
And the Bible says they did exactly what Peter told them to do. They were baptized. And then it says the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, we've been moving fast. We're going to slow down a minute. You know, when you really think about this, it's somewhat peculiar. There were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This made me ask some questions, so we're going to ask these questions, and I'm not looking for verbal responses, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions this morning. Number one, how do you add a soul? What does that mean, add a soul? That's kind of odd, right? Well, secondly, which souls were added? Because it says there were added about 3,000 souls. Well, why weren't all the souls added? That's a question we got to ask. Number three, to whom or what were they added? They were added to something, right? And fourthly, who added them? Who added them? So what does he mean when it says those who received his word, gladly received his word, were baptized, and the same day they were added to them about 3,000 souls? Well, we're going to go over to Mark for a moment and look at Mark 16, 15. This is when Jesus commissioned them to go and call, to go and preach the gospel. He said unto them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved but he that believeth not shall be damned. This answers our question about how you add a soul, what the souls are added to, and who adds them. We'll get to that moment in, in just a moment. Jesus said, who who believes and is baptized will be what? Will be saved. When it says there were added to them about 3,000 souls, it's talking about the saved, those who were already saved. They gladly received the word, and they were baptized, and the Lord added them. They were added to who? Those who were saved. So going back to Acts chapter 2, 47, as Luke winds up this chapter, notice what he says. He says, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So, let's notice what happened here. They were added to the saved. By who? The Lord. Now here's the problem we've got, and this is why we have so much misunderstanding today in Christianity. Because people want to take church and saved and do this with them and so you know where people are told they'll be told get saved then go join a church but here's the problem with that the bible doesn't use the word church that way here's what the bible says when you get saved the lord adds you to the church now here's the confusion when someone says oh you believe you're the only ones that are saved and everyone else is going to hell that i don't i don't believe that but I'll tell you what I believe the Bible teaches, that the church and the saved are the same thing. Because how do you get into the church? You're saved. Well, who saves you? God does. We don't vote. We can't vote and say, all right, who thinks this person should become a member of the church? We don't have that power. Who has that power? God alone. You know why? Because it's God who saves. And so when someone hears the gospel, they obey that gospel, God saves them, and God adds them to the church. One church, the church. You know what that means? Every single person who has ever obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ is a member of the Lord's church. Whether they do it in a Church of Christ building, or they do it in a river, or they do it in a bathtub or a stock tank. You've got to be small for a bathtub, but we've done it. If you've obeyed the gospel, God saved you, and he added you to the church. Now, let's talk about what that means. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9-10. through 10. Who's Peter writing to? The saints, the saved. And here's what he says, But you were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, 
that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice again the calling. They were called out. What were they called out from? From darkness, from evil, from the world, from wickedness. That's what they were called out from. He said, which in time past were not a people, <coughs> but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There's a lot to digest here. Because as Peter talks to the saints, he identifies them in several ways. And I want to look at every one of those, those things individually for just a moment. He says, you are a chosen generation. If you look up that word chosen, it means an elected generation. You're a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. A nation that is set apart by God. A holy nation, a special nation. You're a peculiar people. And that word peculiar doesn't mean strange or odd. It means a purchased possession. It literally means an acquisition. We're a purchased people. He says, God has called you out of darkness into what? Into light. So now you're in light. He says, in time past, you were not a people, but now you're the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. So let me ask you some questions real quick. Can a person not be part of the chosen generation and be saved? No. What about if someone is not part of the rule priesthood? Are they saved? No. What about the holy nation? Does someone have to be part of the holy nation to be saved? Absolutely. What about if someone's not purchased by God? Are they saved? What about if you're in darkness? Is someone that's in darkness saved? No. What about if you're not the people of God? What if you haven't obtained mercy? Is someone who hasn't obtained mercy, are they saved? You say, Ian, that's what salvation is. That is correct. That's what salvation is. The point is this. Sometimes we get them all mixed up and we think, oh, well, you've got to join the church to be saved. No, don't think that way. That's not how it works. You've got to obey the gospel of Christ so God can make you all of these things so you are the church. You are the church. He makes you the church. You are the church. This is not the church. You are the church if you're saved because God made you so. You are his people. You are holy because of what Jesus did. That's the church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. I want to stop just for a moment. Jesus asked his apostles, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Well, you know, there, obviously there was varying opinions. And so some thought that he was John the Baptist. Others thought he might be Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so that's what Jesus is responding to here. The fact that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say unto you that thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is he telling Peter when he, when he says, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee? What he's saying is this, you believe I'm the Christ, not because someone said, hey, Jesus is the Christ. He said, Peter, you believe I'm the Christ because the Father has revealed to you that I'm the Christ. So you're blessed because you're not believing what people are saying about me. You believe what God's shown you. That's what he's saying. And he said, upon this, upon the reality that I am the Christ, that's the foundation I will build my church. And then he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that mean, the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Well, what's a gate? And this word gates used ten times in the New Testament. What's a gate? It's an entrance into or an exit out of. 
the gates of hell. And the word hell here isn't Gehenna, like the lake of fire. It's Hades, or the, the place of the dead. What's Jesus telling them? I'm going to build my church, and not even death is going to stop me. In fact, his death was necessary for him to build the church. And then he says to Peter, I'm going to give to you the keys of the kingdom. Now, suppose today that I walked over to Lonnie, and I'm going to give him my wife's keys. And I say, Lonnie, I'm going to give to you the, her keys look different, the key to my house. What's he going to do with that key? Why does he need a key? Well, hopefully my son locked the door. So, so he's got to have a key to get in, right? I'm going to give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. To do what? To unlock something. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. He gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot of theories about the kingdom of heaven. One of those theories is that the kingdom is way off out in the future somewhere. It hadn't come yet. And again, I want to say, let's abandon every preconceived notion that we might have and just look at the scriptures because in the scriptures are truth. What does the, the scriptures tell us about the kingdom when it was to come? And we're just going to give this a brief treatment because I believe Brother Nathan's going to talk about this later in the month. I'm assuming that anyway. <coughs> this is Jesus speaking in Mark 9.1. I want to say that again. This is Jesus speaking. He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now let's draw out from what Jesus says here some, some facts. Jesus told them the kingdom would be something they would see coming with power and it would happen in their lifetime. Okay, so several possibilities. Possibility number one, the kingdom hasn't come, so therefore Jesus was wrong. We're not going to take that position, are we? Well, maybe he was ignorant. Is that the position we'd take? The Son of God was ignorant? No, I'm not taking that position. Okay, he lied. Okay, we're, we're kind of running out of options here. How would you possibly, looking at this scripture alone, say that the kingdom was not going to come? Someone says, well, that's because he told John when Peter was talking to him that John will, will live until he comes. That's not what he said, but we can go back and look at that some other time. But that would be the only last option would be there's some apostle somewhere that's 2,000 years ago, old and they're waiting for the kingdom. Or we could just take it at face value and here's what Jesus said. Some of them, plural, that stand here will not taste of death. They will still be alive until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. The kingdom of God has come already. And it came in their lifetime and it came with power. And see, Jesus gives us more hints to when that happened. So Acts chapter 1 verse 6, it says, When they therefore, that's the disciples, were come together, they asked of him, they asked Jesus, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? What are they asking about? The coming and arrival of the kingdom. That's their question. So that's what Jesus' answer is pertaining to. When's the kingdom coming, Jesus? Here's his answer. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but... See what he tells them? You're on a need-to-know basis, and there's some things that are not for you to know. Times or seasons. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So Jesus said it's going to come in your lifetime. It's going to come with power. Now they ask, when's the kingdom coming? What's he tell them? You're going to receive power. When? When the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And we don't have Luke 24 up here, but if you go look at Luke 24 in the Great Commission, that was another hint that Jesus gave them was to tarry at Jerusalem until they be endued or clothed with power from on high. 
So as we go to Acts chapter 2 now, we're going to see some things happening. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire. Now listen, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. We found it. We found it. This is when they gained power. This is when the Holy Ghost came upon them. This is the time in their lifetime... When the kingdom came, you say, I don't know about that. You sure about that? You know, we skipped some of Peter's sermon earlier, didn't we? We went from verse 24 all the way to 36. Let's go pick back up some of his sermon. I remember, this is the first time the gospel was preached. This is the day that the doors of the church were opened. This is the day that the Lord added 3,000 to the church. Verse 30 As he's preaching about Jesus, here's what he said. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that's talking about David, that of the fruit of his loins, David's loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. This he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Now, question. What is a throne? That's where a king sits. Whose throne was Jesus to sit on? David's. Where at? Not in Israel. Not on a physical throne. What did he say? He was speaking this of the resurrection of Christ. You know what's silly? People today will say, the kingdom is yet to come. The kingdom is yet to come. But then they'll say, Jesus is my king. You ever ever thought about that? What if I walked around Pampa and I said, I'm the king of Pampa? Well, first of all, people go, I know you. You're the king of nothing. (laughs) But but why? There's no evidence of my kingdom. You know why? Because I don't have any subjects. You've got to have a kingdom to be a king, right? Something to have dominion over. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus king right now? Is he king? Over what? His kingdom. His kingdom. The kingdom is the church. That's what it is. It's the same thing. This day, you know what Peter did? He didn't just call them out. He took the gospel and he opened the door. The keys that Jesus gave him to open the door to the kingdom. And people pressed into it. Peter opened that door. Luke 17 and 20, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. Again, what are they asking about? When's the kingdom coming? He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo, here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Here's what Jesus said when the Pharisees asked him about when the kingdom was coming. Because you know what they thought? They thought, when it comes, we'll surely see it. We'll surely see it. You know what he said? You won't see it. You won't see it. It doesn't come with observation. How do we observe something? With our eyes. See what he says? Neither shall they say to to you, lo here. Oh, here's the kingdom. Or lo there. Oh, there's the kingdom. No, they're not going to say that. You know why? Because you can't see the kingdom. Not with your eyes. And then he explains why. Because the kingdom of God is within you. Because the kingdom of God is not Jesus sitting on a physical throne in Jerusalem. Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God today. And who's he king over? The inner man of his disciples. He's king over the hearts and minds of his people. That's the kingdom of God. It's not a physical kingdom. As they tried to accuse Jesus of causing a revolt against Rome and Pilate was beginning to interrogate Jesus, Jesus said this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. That word hence means here. What's Jesus telling him? He said, Pilate, if I was king over an earthly kingdom, 
there'd be a war. And you know what he's inferring? I'd win. My servants would fight if that were the nature of my kingdom. Because that's how earthly kingdoms are established. You go in and you take over the existing throne. But he said, that's not my kingdom. Because my kingdom's spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. So let me ask you another question. How do you get into the kingdom? Can you see the kingdom? You say, well, no, we just established that. You can't see the kingdom. Right, but sometimes the Bible uses things in a literal way. Sometimes it uses it in a figurative way. So as Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand some things about the kingdom, notice what he tells him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's two different things that Jesus talks about here. And at first he talks about being born again. And that is making Nicodemus just, obviously this question is sarcastic. He's like, I'm an old man. I I can't go and be born again. That doesn't make sense. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I mean. I don't mean, when I say born again, I don't mean a physical birth. I mean a spiritual birth. The birth of spirit. A spiritual birth born of what? Water. Born of water. And so, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. If you're not born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Someone says, you just said we can't see the kingdom. No, that's not what I said. and That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says you won't see it coming. You're not going to see it coming. But I see the kingdom. I hope you see the kingdom. I see the kingdom right here. I see the kingdom when I call a brother to do something very difficult for me, and he goes and he helps me. I see the kingdom. I see the kingdom when someone in kindness goes, and they share with their means with someone else who is needy. I see the kingdom when someone forgives a transgression that's been committed against them. We see the kingdom, don't we? Because we know what it is. And if you're born again, you can see the kingdom. But if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom. And Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. You're born of water and of the Spirit. A spiritual birth. A rebirth that is spiritual, that is done in water. What is that spiritual rebirth that's done in water? Romans 6, 4, and 5. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now listen closely. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead. What is that? It's a rebirth. That's exactly what he calls it, that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren by the resurrection from the dead. It's a rebirth. The old man dies, that seed is sown, and then it comes forth in what? A new creature, a new creation, a new birth. And when does that happen? At baptism. Notice, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's a birth. New life. Newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. To put all this together, here's what he's saying. When you're buried with Jesus and you're resurrected with him, you're born again. And what happens when we're born again? We can now see the kingdom and we can now enter the kingdom. Because the kingdom is the church and the church is the kingdom. They're the exact same thing. And Jesus reigns over his kingdom, over his church today. And notice what Jesus said in Luke 19, 27. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them bring hither and slay them before me. Do you think that you need to be a part of the kingdom to be saved? Absolutely. You know why? Because you either allow Jesus to reign over you or you don't. And when you don't, this parable that Jesus gave about judgment will come to fruition. 
There's going to be a lot of people who reject Jesus as their king and their Lord. And they're not saved. Jesus has to be king, and we have to be his subjects. You've got to be part of the kingdom to be saved. Because it's the same thing. The kingdom is the saved. And no one that's in the kingdom is not saved. Because when we're saved, God adds us to his kingdom, to his church. The church is also called the body. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the body. I think we're going to get a good dose of that over the next couple of weeks. Ephesians chapter 1, 22 through 23, it says of Jesus, he hath put, him, put all things under his feet. That's a statement of ruling, a statement of being king. And gave him to be the head over all things. You see that? Three statements there that indicate Jesus is ruling over something. He's reigning. All things are under him. He gave him to be the head over all things. To what? To the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. You know, sometimes people will say they don't think the church is important. I hope we don't feel that way. The Bible says that the body of Christ is the fullness of him that fills all in all. It's the total completeness of God's plan for mankind. How important is the church? It's the fullness of God toward man. It's the body of Jesus. You have a body, don't you? you say, well, of course I have a body. You have a body. Is that body important to you? Do you take care of your body? Sometimes our body goes haywire and we go, something's wrong with my body. It's important, right? Do you think Jesus' body is important? How many bodies does Jesus have? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You say, oh, no, 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 no. When it says one body, I know that the body's the church. And again, this is the same letter that he's writing here. But, but, that, but, but there's one church, but yeah, there's all kinds of churches. Well, let's say we do that with the rest of these things. There's one spirit, but there's all kinds of spirits. There's one Lord, but many lords. One God? Doesn't work, does it? Whatever he means when he says one God, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, he means when he says there's one body. One body. You know why? Because the body is all-inclusive of every person that has ever been saved by Jesus Christ through his gospel. One body. And we all belong to one body. Just one. It's singular. And it all belongs to him. It's his body. How do we get into the body? <laughs> Ephesians 5, 23 through 25. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of who? Of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for what? For it. Who is Jesus the Savior of? The body. Who did Jesus die for? The body. You say, ah, that sounds a lot like predestination. That's because, again, we get our terms confused. What is the body? It's the saved. Well, let's just look at it that way. Jesus is the Savior of the saved. Oh, well, that makes sense, right? He's the Savior of the saved. He gave himself for it, the body. Who? The saved. Let's look at it this way. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Now listen, to feed the church of God, the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church is purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus shed his blood? What did Jesus say? 
This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You know what he's saying? I shed my blood to save sinners. To save sinners. That's what he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus is the Savior of the body. Why? Because he bought it with his blood. He purchased it because it is the saved. Who is Paul writing to? The saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. How are we saved? Through the gospel and being baptized. How do we enter the kingdom? Through the gospel and being baptized. How do we enter the body? Through the gospel and being baptized. Why? Because it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. 1 Timothy 3, 15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We're going to shift gears for a moment. As we're closing, we're going to shift some gears. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he impresses upon him something very important. You know what that is? The church, he says, is the pillar and ground of the truth. And I'm going to tell you, this is not to be critical, but you may take it as a lamentation. The church has just turned into some big marketing scheme. I don't mean here. I mean, if you look around, that's what's happened. Just as Peter prophesied, men would use the church to line their pockets full of money. And it's turned into some big marketing scheme. And so we'll change the truth if we can fill the pews. Oh, we know the Bible says that's sinful, but that's okay. God is a God of love. We tolerate and love everybody here. You know what the church is? It's the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. What is a pillar? What's he mean ground? That which upholds. The church must uphold the truth. And so he's telling Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so you know how to behave yourself. Why? Because truth is important. And truth must be upheld. And that is what the church is. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. What happens when the church loses that identity? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know what would be wonderful? If we could go to any town, anywhere, walk into a building where a church was meeting, and they all taught the same thing. There was no divisions, no divisions, but that we were united, all of the same mind and same judgment. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, that's exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. That those who God gave to him would all be one. Just as they are one. That the world might believe. You know what the world sees now? A big mess. A big mess. You know what? We should have one congregation of the Lord's church here in Pampa, Texas. Just one. We should all speak the same things. Have no divisions. Be perfectly joined together. You say, that's impossible. People are different. That's the problem. People are different. And we, we often magnify our beliefs instead of what the Bible says. If we just scrapped all of our traditions, all of our ideas, and we went to the Bible, you know what we get? New Testament Christianity. That's what God designed the church to be, the pillar and ground of the truth of his word. And where was this happening? In the first century in the church at Corinth. You think a name doesn't matter? Does a name matter? Let's, let's read on. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions, that is, fightings and strife among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You know what he's saying? 
I've heard from the household of Chloe, apparently a, a, a very prominent member there in Corinth, that there are divisions among you and you're calling yourselves by men's names. That's what he said. You're, you're saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Some, as they should have been, say, have been saying, were saying, I'm of Christ. And he asked them three questions that I want us to consider. Is Christ divided? That's a rhetorical question, right? Christ is not divided. So what's his point? If Christ is not divided, then why are you? Why are you? And then he says this, was Paul crucified for you? What's the answer? No, Paul was not crucified for them. So why would you say, I am of Paul? That makes no sense. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Answer, no. Then why would you wear Paul's name? So here's my question. This is Paul's question. This is his point. What name could we all wear that would not divide Christ? Christ. What name could we all wear and identify ourselves by that would show who was crucified for us? Christ. What name could we all wear that would show whose name we were baptized in? Christ. You know what that is? That's not a denomination. That's not division. That's what we're called to do. And there's a reason for that. Who owns the church? Christ. He bought it. It's his kingdom. He's the head of that body. He's the savior of his saved. He is the husband of his bride. Oh, you want to get people upset? I'll tell you, if tomorrow Toya comes to me, and she won't do this, but if she came to me tomorrow and she said, Ian, I made a decision. From now on, I'm going to be Toya Jewett. Guys, how'd you like that? Say, well, I don't know what your game is, but <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> we, would, we would dishonor, right? But yet we want to call ourselves by names that dishonor the husband, the king, the savior, the head, the one who owns. We honor Jesus Christ by wearing his name. It's not about denominating ourselves. It's not about dividing from the rest of of, of Christianity or being a sect. It's about wearing the name that doesn't divide Jesus. And names are important. You don't believe that? Next time you go do some work for somebody, have them sign a different name down in the bottom right corner and go cash your check. You think a name's not important then? I want Jesus' name on my check, don't you? For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's the last thing I want to mention to us today. We're the family of God. That's what the church is. As we've looked today, and some of this may be small, so I'll try to read it loudly. We've learned today that the church is the saved. The church is those that have been called out of darkness by the gospel of Jesus Christ into his marvelous light. The church is a holy nation. That word holy there, you know what it is? Nathan talked about us being saints last week. Go look up the word saint in the Greek, and it's the word hagios, which is the same word that's translated holy. That's what saint means. Set apart. Made holy. That's who the church is. They're the saints, the holy nation. A royal priesthood, the people of God, the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the pillar and ground of the truth. And I want to ask you today, are you in that church? Are you in that church? And I want to repeat something. When you come up to be baptized, you're not being added to the church at Somerville Street. That's not how it works. You're not baptized to join the church, as in the people in this room. When you're baptized, you're baptized to come into contact with the blood of Jesus. And when that happens, God sets you apart, and he forgives you of sin, and he adds you to the church, the saved. Are you in that church? Because that's the only church that matters, is the church 
that Jesus purchased. And if you're not a member of that church today, come to him in repentance and in submission and be united with Jesus Christ and clothed with his righteousness and God will add you to the kingdom that Jesus reigns over today. Come and have a seat as we stand and we sing.